Hello and welcome to another edition of the China and Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden from the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University in Cape Town, South Africa. Happy New Year, Kobus. Happy New Year. We're back after a two-week break and into the new year. And before we get started on this podcast, I wanted to、uh, do a few housekeeping issues that uh, that, uh, that that might be of interest.、Uh, also, this new year, we're going to be launching our very first mobile apps coming out very soon,、uh, both on iOS and on Android. And you'll be able to listen to the podcast, follow our Facebook, our Twitter feeds, and our blog. So keep an eye out for that. We'll have an announcement coming up soon. I also wanted to give a big welcome to、uh, to the students of Stefan Andresen, who is a senior lecturer. At Queen's University in Belfast,、uh, he mentioned he tweeted us and he said that、uh, he's going to use the podcast in an upcoming course on African political economy. So we want to welcome all of the students there, and also we want to give a very big welcome to all of our new fans and friends on Facebook at facebook.com/slash/ChinaAfricaProject. We're now over thirty-one thousand followers. And really, just some fantastic discussions are going on, and I'm really just incredibly impressed with the level of debate and, and discourse that's going on on the page. And so, welcome to everybody who has followed the page. So,、uh, with those housekeeping issues out of the way, Cobus, let's get started onto this week's show. And we're really going to do some. We're going to kind of pull the the curtain back behind the, the world of academia. And show what a what a what a really just down home squabble looks like,、uh, and there's been a, a, a dispute going on、uh, over an article written in the Oxford University China Africa Network、uh, regarding the use of 100 dams and the source of that 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 quote in a in a blog post. And so we'll talk about the whether China is building 100 dams in Africa and the dispute that has ensued with one of the industry's leading China Africa scholars. So don't miss this one. This is going to. Be very entertaining.、Uh, next, we're going to talk about Zimbabwe coal and how Zimbabwe is apparently sitting on piles and piles and piles of coal that has caught the attention of both China and Japan. And、uh, as both of those countries look to diversify their energy sources, all eyes are being focused now in Zimbabwe. And then the last thing we're going to talk about in today's show is the evacuation of 300、uh, Chinese nationals from the Central African Republic, where, of course, there has been yet another uprising. There, so this is a country that over the past decades、uh, has been plagued by political unrest, and yet it's undergoing another round of such unrest. And、uh, Chinese, three hundred of them at least, are now out. We'll talk about. Whether this is a new trend and how the Chinese are doing, actually, not a bad job at evacuating their citizens from、uh, from African unrest, and we'll talk about that. So, Cobus, let's get started with this dispute、uh, over 100 dams. Now, let me just kind of set it up for you, and then you will kind of kind of put the context for us. There was a blog post put out by、uh, Dr. Harry Verhoven, and he wrote、uh, on the Oxford University China Africa Network, and you can find that at、uh, oucan.politics.ox. ac.uk not an easy address to remember, but look for the Oxford University China Africa Network, and he wrote an article: "Big is Beautiful: Mega Dams, African Water Security, and China's Role in the New Global Political Economy." And now his post was a blog post; it was not an academic article, and I think that's a very important point to make. However,、uh, he did not do a very good job at sourcing, and there was a one line, or actually two lines in here, Cobus, that I want to get your reaction to. He wrote, "In half of all African countries, from the Sudanese desert and Ethiopian lowlands to the rivers of Algeria and Gabon, Chinese engineers are involved in the planning, 
heightening, and building of more than 100 dams. Okay, that is the contentious point here, and the sourcing on that was very, very weak, even by his own admission. Now, he defends the statement, uh, International Rivers and other NGOs that follow it were called out by uh, by Professor De- Deborah Braudigam, who's now at Johns Hopkins, and of course she is probably the leading China-Africa scholar, and on her blog, China Africa Real Story, she really just lays in to Dr. Harry Verhoeven in a, what I thought was a very fair and constructive way. After all, Verhoeven himself, you know, he this was a public blog post that he first published, so then she put a rebuttal up. Now, this ensued a, a debate between the two of them that raises the very important and very sensitive issue of dam construction. So let's first talk about dams in China, and then I want you to give me your perspective on which side of this debate between Verhoeven and Braudigam do you believe is more legitimate? Well, <clears throat> you know, dam construction in the first place, I, mean, I think I think Verhoeven made an interesting point that, you know, for a long time, during the, during the, the 50s and 60s, dam construction was this the, the pinnacle of, of um, status building for developing nations. It was, you know, kind of this massive, these massive, impressive projects that took control over nature, took control over water cycles, released people from, you know, from flooding, for example, you, you know, generated electricity. And then through the 70s, they started becoming very, very, very criticized. The Aswan Dam in Egypt was, was particularly seen as, you know, this environmental disaster. Um, and then they became very, very unsexy for a while. And they were seen as a way, you know, kind of destroying communities and destroying ecosystems and, and so on. And now the Chinese, the Brazilians and, um, and the Indians are moving back, you know, kind of into building mega dams. And the Chinese, particularly, obviously, the Three Gorges Dam is, is, is you know, the most famous example. Um, and, you know, and, and obviously the, you know, Africa being so hungry for electricity, particularly, um, you know, is a, is a rich, you know, kind of place for, for this kind of investment at the moment. You know, kind of there's a lot of dam, uh, dam construction going on in Africa. Um, so I think generally his, his, you know, his, his general theme you know, kind of is interesting, but then when it comes down to the numbers and what you mean with dams and what you mean with development and, you know, and whether a project that's simply being planned, whether that counts as a project, all of that, you know, those kind of semantics start becoming very, very complicated. And I think that's where, that's where they really clash. So let me now kind of articulate some of the semantics that are here. Now, so when Verhoeven said 100 dams, he didn't really use the necessary nuance That is to say, what role is China engaging in? Now, I think it's also very important to identify that Verhoeven himself is an Africa specialist and he's not a China specialist. And I think this is a very important point because it goes to his credibility here. One of the things that he he kind of he characterized Sino Hydro, which is one of the largest, uh, I think it's in fact, if not the largest hydroelectric uh, company in the world, uh, and it may be the largest. He, you know, he, for example, he characterized the leadership of Sinohydro as being communist loyalists, which I think is a very interesting way to describe the heads of Chinese state-owned enterprises. They are, in fact, not loyalists. They, well, of course they are at one level, but, you know, at the end of the day, they are the core of the Communist Party and the Communist Party leadership. They work for the party. And it just kind of revealed to me the language that he was using when describing the Chinese um, had a tint of not fully understanding how the system works, which then started to raise doubts in my mind about his numbers. Now, let me give you Braudigam's perspective here. Braudigam makes the difference between 
MOUs, Memorandums of Understanding, the financing, and the actual construction. And she points out the fact that nowhere in the sourcing of Verhoeven is there anything that suggests 100 dams are actually being built by the Chinese. And it's to that point that she says it's an exaggeration. Now, Cobus, on ChinaAfricasRealStory.com blog, which is Deborah Brautigam's blog, Verhoeven, just a couple days ago, comes back and rebuts her criticism. And and he gets a little pissy, to be honest with you, which it, it kind of shows, frankly, you academics don't have very thick skins, in my view. But No. <laughs> <laughs> let's kind of... So he comes back, and what does he say to her? Well, you know, in the first place, he... he Acknowledge that that uh, some of the footnotes were misplaced, and so there were some editing problems. Um, and then, you know, kind of, he says that um, that instead of 100 dams, it should rather have been have read 100. Um, you know, the planning, building, and heightening of 100 large-scale hydro infrastructure projects. So that would then. In- Include things like irrigation projects, you know, kind of, and so that's quite different. Even though uh, you know a significant amount of those projects would include dams, that's not necessarily 100 dams. In the second place, it's not necessarily 100 dams being built right now. They they include um, you know uh, about, you know things being planned and you know and, and, and like through all of the pro- all of the the phases of the process. Um, and you know, kind of as as one of the people from the NGO um, International Rivers pointed out. Um, he, they took issue a little bit with her, with her kind of implication that you know that something that's being planned is doesn't have any kind of impact. You know that only things being built have impact, um, and I, I tend to agree with him that once things are in that in that um, in that pipeline, they tend to have a weight of their own and they tend to influence things. Fair you know, enough, in, in but does but other, I, other parts of society. Yeah, but fair enough. But to her point, though. I believe, you know, to be, you know, intellectually sound, you have to have some kind of segregation between, you know, ideas that are just MOUs. I mean, people write MOUs every day that never actually get implemented and what's actually being implemented. And I think they could have separated that. But I think another key point that she raised is, and this is the conclusion of her main point, and is he used the word mega dams. So it wasn't even the fact that he then went back to modify his language to be hydroelectric infrastructure projects, which is a you know vastly more nuanced language than using in the headline of his post, mega dams, African water security, and China's role in the new global political economy. That's a very charged headline. And in part because it's not just in Africa that there are very big concerns about the Chinese building dams. Uh, here in Asia, the Chinese have been accused of damming up the Mekong, which has a big effect on the rest of Southeast Asia. Uh, the Chinese are building dams in, 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 in South Asia as well. Uh, so this is, a, this is a very loaded, charged issue. And in what she accuses Verhoeven and also International Rivers, and you know with my hostility towards NGOs that uh, I, I will agree with her on this, is that it is very dangerous to overestimate uh, the Chinese capability and to tap into these emotional types of things in order to, ra- to raise awareness and attention. NGOs in Africa have been famous for doing that, whether it's exaggerating famine, whether it's exaggerating war in the DRC Congo, which has happened for years, uh, whether it's exaggerating lots of different things. Here we, we see the over kind of calculation, the overestimation of Chinese power, which, uh, as John Pomfret of the Washington Post, Deborah Brautigam quotes him in saying, that's just as bad as underestimating the Chinese. What are your final thoughts on this debate? 
Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, I think she's she's particularly she's kind of very straightforward in that where she's saying that NGOs are advocacy organisations and they don't have an incentive to report accurately. You know, kind of NGOs obviously they you know they depend on funding and their funding depends on the size of the problem that they're supposed to that they're supposed to solve. And I mean, I'm not saying that NGOs are liars necessarily. I'm just saying that they are in a different game than academics and journalists. But they um, can and be liars. And I think it's yeah. worth no. It's important yeah. to acknowledge the fact that they can be liars. To in order, as you said, to generate funds and raise money, which just kind of sometimes raises their research into question if it's not properly sourced. Continue. I apologize for interrupting. Yeah, no, no, no. I think I think it also just just the whole fight as a whole just shows how difficult it actually is to do this kind of research, you know. Because um, you know, I read a I read a piece by um, Max Security Solutions, a consultancy, um, you know, writing about uh, you know kind of dams being like six big water projects being planned um, up the Nile, um, and you know, coming conflicts between Ethiopia, Egypt, um, and Sudan about Nile water, and you know that potentially is a massive conflict if if it's happening you know kind of so there's very very large ramifications about these issues but at the same time it's really difficult particularly in countries like sudan to get hard numbers you know kind of i mean it's, it's the, the government of sudan is notoriously difficult to work with so yeah you know kind of it, it's just it's a massive challenge um and i think this these kind of fights make clear what a challenge it is and i think it's very valuable for that reason yeah and i think to your point that it is a massive challenge so therefore when we put numbers out like 100 dams, those numbers have to be with an asterisk on it. That's to say, we don't truly have a fixed number because, you know, as with anything to do with China-Africa research, you know, being able, it's such an opaque space that is, to your point, it's difficult to actually find out what's what. And there's a lot of nuance in those numbers. Uh, my, actually, I, I know I said final comments. One last question on this. What role do you think the Oxford University China-Africa Network has now, this was a blog. It was not a research, so it didn't have to be peer-reviewed. Um, but it struck me as this was kind of amateur for the for, 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 for Oxford University China Africa Network to have a blog from – okay, he's an accredited academic. He's respected. There's no doubt there. But this was sloppy in my view. Um, his, if, even if the, the worst crime that he did was his footnotes were wrong and he was called out for his footnotes being wrong – to me, this is a black mark on him, what, what, and even on, on Oxford University China Africa Network. This shouldn't happen on, on, at a prestigious blog like this. Yeah, I think, you know, this really raises what the role of blogs are in our world at the moment, you know, particularly in the, in in moments like, you know, for example, like Oxford University China Africa Network that need to move their work outside of pure academe into into the rest of the world. Um, you know, because w- one of the nightmares of, 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 of being an academic is your entire future, your entire professional future depends on getting published. And the, you know, kind of, so every single journal has, is an incredible bottleneck where sometimes they are, um, you know, publishing cues that, that stretch for two, three years. You know, I've, I, I submitted a paper, um, on, on Japanese stuff. I submitted it in 2006. It got published in 2011. <laughs> um, you know, so, so, you know, kind of, so in, in that kind of situation where thousands of academics future depends on how much they get published, um, you know, thing, you know, websites and blogs and alternative ways of moving their work out into the world become very, very important. And those, because blogs depend on speed, it, you know, kind of, they don't have, you know, 
peer review systems kind of set up. Um, so it becomes really complicated, you know, kind of to, to work out exactly who has to take responsibility for these kind of situations and how they're supposed to be fixed. You know, kind of, I think probably in this case, you know, maybe that blog needs a dedicated editor that can check all of these things, you know, kind of a, a, like a, a version of the New Yorker fact-checking, you know, kind of system or something. But yeah, you know, kind of, I think we, we academia generally sits with a publishing crisis. Yeah. Um, and this, I think, is one, is one version of it. And it's, uh, so it's an interesting debate. We encourage, we encourage you to take a look at the debate. I think the best place to go for all of the resources is Deborah Browdigam's blog. Once again, that's at the com. Scroll all the way down to the bottom of her post, Is China Really Building 100 Dams in Africa? And that was published on December 13th. And you will see the discussion between Professor Braudigam and Dr. Verhoeven. And I think it's an interesting discussion to have, not just because, again, it shows a catfight between academics, which is, you know, always entertaining. Uh, but it's also just there's a really at the core here a very important issue is understanding dams understanding China's dam building agenda, understanding what is fact and what is fiction, what is the myth here, uh, because this is a very, very important issue. Okay, let's move on now. Still staying in the energy sector, uh, an article caught our attention from the Paris-based Africa Report, which is a fantastic magazine on African news. Uh, highly, highly recommend it. They have a new iPad and Android edition, which I, which I really recommend subscribing to. But they posted an article this week called Japan and China to Compete for Zimbabwean Coal. Now, this caught my attention, Kobus, because when I started my Chinese political studies in the 80s, yes, I'm dating myself here, um, you know, it was always referred to as, China was always referred to as the Saudi Arabia of coal. Uh, in fact, China has 13% of the world's coal reserves, um, and it uh, generates 49, let's see, hold on, consume, it's the largest consumer of coal in the world, uh, and it's also now about to become the largest user of coal-derived electricity in the world, and again, it has about 13% of the world's proven reserves. With that in mind, uh, when I studied my, my, my stu- when I started my studies, it was always saying that China would be fueled by coal, and, you know, at the end of the day... That was the most important energy source that it had. Now, that was back in the 80s and the early 90s when China's economy was a fraction of the size it is today. Today, China cannot feed itself on its own electricity, which is one of the reasons why it's embarking on a massive nuclear production, nuclear power production, uh, hydro, as you talked about with the Three Gorges Dam in Hunan province, and now going abroad for coal. But they are not alone in targeting Zimbabwe. Uh, the Japanese also have their eye on coal. Now, this is particularly important for Japan, correct me, because after Fukushima, Japan has severely curtailed its nuclear power generation capacity. So Japan now is competing in the energy markets in places that I bet you they never thought they would be vying, especially up against the Chinese. Tell us a little bit about why Zimbabwe coal has caught the attention of both of these two Asian superpowers. Well, I think Zimbabwe, you know, has, has massive coal reserves and it's generally, the whole of Southern Africa has quite large coal reserves, particularly South Africa. Um, and Zimbabwe, I think, is much less mined um, than South Africa. Um, South Africa, in fact, is f- facing a bit of an environmental crisis due to coal mining. Um, and Zimbabwe has, has much larger untapped reserves. Um, so they, they um, signed this deal with the Japan Oil, Gas, Metals National Corporation um, in order to, to deliver um, 15 million tons of coal annually. Um, 
but at the same time, <laughs> at the moment, Zimbabwe is only delivering about two two million tons. So from you know, two to fifteen million, they want to go up seven hundred percent. Yeah. Exactly, you know, and at the same time, it seems that the, uh, while this is while this has been signed, you know, they also they started um, they kicked off a project called China Africa Sunlight um, with I think uh, Taishan Corporation, um, and um, you know, kind of that they um, they are investing about two two billion dollars um, into developing new coal mines and developing like. Um, you know, kind of methane gas extraction and power generation. Um, so I'm not 100 percent sure how they're going to be, how Zimbabwe is going to be able to supply both China and Japan. You know, having already now signed these two massive deals. Well, what do you think the issues are for Zimbabwe? Does Zimbabwe, and you know, do they care if they're dealing with the Chinese or the Japanese? I mean, if the check's clear, great. Who, who is there any preference in your mind? I mean, we don't really hear that much about the Japanese in Africa. And that's maybe not because they're not there. It's just because they operate in very different sectors that aren't attracting the same level of attention, that isn't attracting the same level of attention as, say, what the Chinese are doing. What's your, you know, as a researcher on Japan and Africa, what's your take on Zimbabwe's position in all of this? Yeah, um, I mean, Japan has been in Africa longer than I think most of the countries. They 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 had a you know already kind of um, they have almost you know hundred years long history um, of of expansion to to Africa um, through kind of difficult situations. But generally, you know, as Japan moved up the production um, the production stream towards more and more high tech work, they found smaller markets and you know um, kind of less this need for this kind of uh, massive. Um, you know, kind of, uh, for example, you know, coal kind of commodities from Africa. Um, I think Zimbabwe has a very strong traditional history with China. Um, and every time Mugabe speaks, he basically, you know, calls China, you know, kind of Zimbabwe's all-weather friend, and he always um, compares China with the West. So um, even, you know, and there's all kinds of weird, like, you know, uh, diplomacy gestures between Zimbabwe and China. For example, recently Zimbabwe sent a, a bunch of juvenile elephants to China and you know kind of cause a bunch of protests in the pro in the process so um, I think Japan is a newcomer in Zimbabwe particularly um, and uh, you know Japan has a much longer history with South Africa than with Zimbabwe as far as I understand um, and I think they're, they're a newcomer as, as you mentioned they're a newcomer generally with, with coal at the moment because for obviously since the war Japan has been very focused on nuclear um, and it's only because of the Fukushima disaster that they, that they now need to diversify yeah I mean it's really I think this is uh, this is scary on one key front because as Japan turns more to coal, as China remains addicted to coal, in part because of its cost. You know, this is the the argument that I, I get into with liberals in the U.S. who talk about new energy sources for a country like China. You simply can't power Chongqing or Xi'an or Beijing; these you know huge, massive mega cities on solar, wind, or any type of alternative energy. These cities of 10 and 20 million people need low-cost energy in the form of nuclear or coal. It's a, just a reality that has to be accepted. The downside of it, and the, the thing that's scary to me, is that if Japan starts turning to coal, uh, the environmental impact on that could be quite significant. Absolutely. And I mean, just, you know, excuse me for a little Japan rant. Um, you know, as someone who's lived in Japan for a long time, and I have a very close relationship with Japan, and obviously, my, you know, my partner is Japanese and, and so on. Japan makes me crazy in certain ways. Because, <laughs> you know, because, you know, why does a country that sits on five different tectonic plates with more 
volcanoes and more, you know, kind of earthquakes and more general, you know, um, geo, you know, kind of geothermal kind of action in their backyards. Why do they need nuclear and coal plants at all? Why are they not Iceland of East Asia? You know, um, I was at ski resorts in, in Japan, in the mountains, where there are literally pools of boiling water kind of melting the snow, and these little Japanese old, little old ladies kind of boiling eggs in the water and selling them. Like, why is that not, you know, kind of world central for geothermal energy? I cannot understand it. It's like some kind of, you know, it's that classic iron triangle thing between the industry, the the, you know, the bureaucrats of the government. Uh, you know, it's crazy. Well, I'm going to Sorry, assume Sorry, end of rant. I was about to say, that was a nice <laughs> rant. I'm going to assume that there is a some some way a, a rational explanation for this. Um, but in the meantime, while the, the Japanese are not tapping geothermal, uh, they are tapping coal. And it seems that Zimbabwe may become a major coal provider. Now, what's interesting about this as well, and this is in the context of some of our other conversations that we have, uh, we've had about the changing energy picture in Africa. So... East Africa is now, you know, the, the Tanzania, Kenya side of, of uh, is now sitting on potentially huge natural gas and oil reserves, both in Lake Victoria as well as off the coast. Uh, Ghana now is sitting on one of the largest new discoveries as well. We've seen the Chinese take over uh, Total's uh, fields in Nigeria. Uh, Angola is now stepping up its exports. Sudan is, as things calm down a little bit, China and CNUC and CNPC are benefiting from that. So this coal project in the broader context of, of energy from Africa seems to make the continent even more important to the Chinese and potentially the Japanese and now obviously the Americans as well. Yeah, at the same time, it's very interesting to see, you know, we, we, there was a very interesting article on a blog, uh, website called oilprice.com about this weird situation where, the, you know, even though China imports massive amounts of coal, um, and they frequently import it from countries like uh, like Indonesia, you know, and um, they the fact that they're such a large importer means that they can also negotiate the price mm -hmm. down. So it's this weird situation where they need more and more coal, but the price keeps going down. And apparently there are um, new coal, big coal reserves coming available in Mongolia soon as well. And so, the, so even though China is using more and more and more and more coal, the price keeps going down. Um, so I think that's it's that's this interesting kind of economic conundrum, you know, kind of that. I think as you as you said, it's just you know just environmentally, it's just a nightmare. Yeah, it is a nightmare. I mean, there's no doubt, and and this is really a nightmare for more so for the for Chinese citizens who are choking on their own pollution at, at unprecedented levels. I mean, it is just horrific in the big cities what it's like to live there. And so the the thought of adding yet more coal into this mix is really tragic uh, on one very important level. My last question for you is that as Zimbabwe, you know, becomes an energy-producing country, which, you know, 2 million tons to 15 million tons is a very big jump, uh, what does this do for ZANU-PF and for, for, for Mugabe? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, you know, kind of Mugabe obviously is very old, um, and there are um, moves. There, there's there's been some um, successor grooming kind of moves within ZANU PF. Um, you know, yeah, you know, it's difficult for me to really make it make a pronouncement either way. I think if if the the, the economy becomes stronger, that would probably strengthen ZANU PF in the long run. 
Um, but I think it becomes a very, very difficult issue to say who, what will Zona BF be like after Mugabe because it's been so dominant over the culture of the party. Um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, I'm, I, I do think that, that, um, that sanctions and isolation tends to strengthen elites, particularly the Mugabe's elite. You know, I think the, the, the global sanctions against Zimbabwe only strengthened Mugabe. Um, and if, if, you know, in part of these, these kind of projects is, for example, the strengthening of rail connections between Zimbabwe and Mozambique. And if, if Zimbabwe in that way becomes more um, integrated into the Southern African economy, no matter who takes over ZANU, that will probably, you know, lead to a more, you know, kind of at least a, a more multilateral kind of system in Zimbabwe. That's what I'm hoping. Yeah. The other option is that it might just just strengthen the worst parts of ZANU and just give them more money. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I'm going to go with the latter uh, on the two. Uh, you know, I watched a very interesting documentary from Al Jazeera English, which talked about the, in Zimbabwe, how the money laundering, how it works from the inside out. And one of the key things that they talk about is the fact that Zimbabwe, like a number of sub-Saharan African countries, is blessed with huge natural resources, Yet most of that money is going right into the pockets of a select few people who are close to ZANU-PF. And so it's hard to think that under the current political system, you know, irrespective of whether Mugabe stays or not, that Chinese or Japanese money is going to make it into some kind of transparent system. You, I just I, – I have no, my – I, I mean it's I, just I not agree, possible. Yeah. And I think that anybody who, who believes in that is, is kind of fooling themselves. Um, let's go yes. now on to our third and final topic, which is not a very big issue, but it's something that's interesting. Uh, there's yet another – a rebel uprising in the Central African Republic. This, of course, by itself is not news because this has been a country that regrettably has been plagued since its independence from France with one uprising after another. Um, and uh, in fact, it, it's ironic because President Bouzizi, um, I hope I'm saying that correctly, he took power in a coup himself in 2003. So uh, this is something that he should be very familiar with. He says he's going to remain committed to stay in office until 2016. That said, uh, with rebels now kind of turning over one city after another on their way to the capital of Bangui, um, they, it does not seem likely that he will survive. But what makes it interesting for our show and our audience and our podcast is the fact that the Chinese evacuated 300 people from, uh, from, from Central African Republic. And this is now, the, you know, the Chinese seem to be getting better at this. I'll bring you back to, to March of, I think it was last year, during the Libya uprising. And uh, at that time, uh, the Chinese evacuated 30,000 people from Libya. Uh, so the Chinese seem to be getting more adept at these types of command and control situations from their embassies. Um, this is not something that the embassies have traditionally had a role doing in, in Africa. For the most part, uh, Chinese people throughout Africa complain bitterly on social networks and in person the fact that the embassies really don't do anything. Um, they don't help people. They don't coordinate. It's not like what you think of for an American embassy or a European embassy where there is a kind of organizational type of role that the embassy plays. But in this case, the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs proudly kind of got together some charter flights and they got, you know, about 300 of their expats out of the Central African Republic. What did you think of this story when you saw it, when it crossed? Well, it was interesting, you know, 
Obviously, Libya comes to mind, and, and I think Libya was probably a, a turning point for the Chinese in Africa because, from what I heard, they were completely um, caught unawares by the amount of by the number of Chinese people actually in Libya. So when they had to to evacuate them, you know, evacuate obviously evacuating thirty thousand people is is a very big. Operation, um, but I think part of the problem was that they didn't know how many people to evacuate and where they were. So obviously, the um, in the case of the Central African Republic, we have very like many many fewer Chinese people there. And it's interesting. Apparently, there were twenty Chinese people living outside of of the capital. Um, you know, so so that's obviously it's it's a it's a much easier operation. At the same time, they seem the embassy seems to be keeping um, many more much much kind of like closer tabs on the on the people. Um, there's one thing I wanted to ask you. Um, the Liu, the the, um, the embassy councillor, um, a, a guy called Liu Baoyi, said that the embassy will ensure the safety and security of Chinese people, um, their lives and their property um, in in the Central African Republic. How do you like? How do you think they're going to pr- be protecting the property? I I noticed that as well, and what I noticed in that statement was that that sounded very much like an American statement. That sounded like you can almost, you know, if an American ambassador or an American political attache was saying something like that, you could imagine that there would be, you know, U.S. Marines somehow ensuring the security and the safety. You know, did you see the movie Argo, the, the uh, you know, the Ben yes. Affleck movie? And you, no. you see these armed Marines in the embassies, you know, ensuring the property and the integrity of the property. And you imagine, you know, maybe do the Chinese have something planned? I sincerely doubt it. I think this is just a more confident China speaking here. Uh, certainly in the context of the Central African Republic, it's a very, very small, you know, this is a small instance. 300 people is very, very small. I mean, if you compare it to the numbers of Chinese that are, say, in, say, just, you know, Cape Town or so, or Johannesburg or, or Kinshasa or any of these major cities, it's, it's in the thousands and the tens of thousands, if not in the hundreds of thousands. Um, and so, so this is really what I take from it is exactly what you saw is we're watching for the cues and the tone and the language that they're using. And the fact that this issue even came up at the foreign ministry briefing in Beijing to me also says something as well, that the Chinese are taking the security of their investments in these very unstable parts of the world much more seriously than before. I don't think that the Chinese have any means of protecting their property in a place like the Central African Republic. Um, I don't think we're going to see Chinese mercenaries or PLA forces, you know, deployed there. Um, I'm not sure that the the, the value of those resources are, are worth enough to do that. That said, um, if they are laying the rhetorical groundwork that they will protect the people and the property of, 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 uh, you know, of the Chinese government or Chinese state-owned enterprises in a country like the Central African Republic, imagine Angola or imagine the Sudan or imagine one of these places where they do have sizable investments that really do matter. Will they use this same language to, to deploy forces there? And that's something that we don't know. We're in a whole new area of rules and, and, and regulations here. This has never happened before that the Chinese deploy mercenaries uh, in large scale. However, I do believe that in the next few years we will see that, just as the Americans and the French uh, and the British have as well. So to your question, I, I take more the linguistic and rhetorical cues than I do the actual substance of his statement. 
Yeah, yeah, I also think so. And, you know, and as you say, you know, kind of as we will only really know once, so, you know, crisis crops up in, in a country where China is very heavily invested, That's right. um, then then we'll really see what, what will happen. Yeah, these are all little cues of how, I mean, from Libya to Sudan, you know, remember we had a spate of hostage uh, takings earlier this year uh, in Egypt and in Sudan and how they responded to that, how they, you know, and so I think it's also very important to recognize that with each of these experiences, the Chinese foreign ministry and the Chinese SOEs operating on the continent are learning and they're becoming more sophisticated. We are seeing progress. We're not seeing, as you said, the shock and and awe that they had of like, holy crap, we've got 30,000 people in Libya. What do we do? Bear in mind, too, with that Libya evacuation is they were far more organized than the Americans. I don't know if you recall, but the Americans struggled to get their nationals out, and it was one failure after another. It was really the you know the, the Keystone cops. They were renting boats on the wrong days, the wrong size. The American boats were stuck at shore. The, the Chinese brought in, for the first time, they brought their battle group from, the East, uh, from, from, from East Africa through the Suez Canal, and that battle group was the first time this had ever happened, coordinated the evacuation from Libya. So the Chinese are playing a different game now than they were, say, 10 years ago. And I think that Central African Republic, as we said, doesn't mean very much in the terms of its scale, but it is an indicator of, what, uh, of where we go from here. Uh, one very final, one important final note. Um, there is an interesting translation that we actually link to on our Facebook page. Again, that's at facebook.com uh, slash China Africa Project. That was done by uh, Tendai Musakawa, and uh, I'm thrilled to welcome Tendai Musakawa to the China Africa Project team. He will be now joining us. I'll be our fourth member with Anne Kobus, myself. Uh, Tendai is a PhD candidate at Fudan University. He's originally from Zimbabwe, uh, fluent in Mandarin, and he's doing, I mean, this is the most badass thing, Kobus, I've heard in a long time. He's doing his PhD on African perceptions of Chinese media all in Chinese. Okay. Yeah, I'm applauding. I mean, come on. I mean, I've been studying Chinese for 30 years, but there's no way I could do a PhD, you know, in Chinese. So, uh, so what, and what Tendai's going to be doing is he's going to be translating the Chinese social web for us about China and Africa. And this is so vital to be able to give, particularly our African uh, listeners and our African readers, a perspective on the Chinese that has not been told right now. And so on Weibo, on Sina, on QQ, Tencent. These are these huge Chinese social networks. And then also on these African social networks that are just for the Chinese called ChineseInAfrica.com, Chufejo.com, which is GoToAfrica.com in Chinese. Uh, He's going to be translating that on our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. We'll be putting that on Facebook. We'll be bringing him on the show, but we're just thrilled to have him on board. So with that, that'll do it for this edition of our podcast, first one of the new year. Uh, Kobus, if people want to follow you uh, and, and kind of stay on top of what you're reading and what you're thinking with respect to China and Africa, what is the best way for them to find you? Um, I contribute regularly to our Facebook page, but I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. Excellent. And you can find me on Facebook as well, where I'm arguing with a lot of people. And again, please don't take offense when I, if I disagree with you on uh, on Facebook. It's all done in the spirit of a good discussion. Uh, but I am the, the instigator uh, of the group. Uh, and then, of course, you can follow me at E-O-Lander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R on Twitter. I'm posting almost every day. 
the top headlines from China in Africa. It's been a bit slow during the holidays in terms of the number of headlines, but we hope that it'll pick up very soon. And in the meantime, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can follow us on Stitcher, which is an online streaming radio portal. And then you can also, of course, find us on SoundCloud as well. So we would love to have your feedback and to have you subscribe. Leave a comment for us on our iTunes page. That does, of course, help us, and we do appreciate it. So uh, until next week, we'll be back with another edition of the China Africa podcast. We'll see you on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and pretty much all over the web. Talk to you soon. Thank you.